does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Hoosiers fall 89 to 75 out west in Las Vegas. The voice of the Hoosiers, Don Fisher, nice enough to take some time with us here on a Monday. Don, how'd Vegas treat you? Uh, let's see. Let me think about this a second. Oh, yes, I was there for six days. <laughs> uh, I actually, I, I actually enjoyed myself out there without question. Uh, had an opportunity to be a part of the National Football Foundation Awards program, and that was fun. And then got to play golf for two or three days, and then did a basketball game. So I had a good time. <laughs> Congrats again on the Schenkel Award. Very happy for you and and, and your career being honored. And uh, they joked on the Big Ten Network broadcast that uh, Indiana had to had to twist your arm a little bit to stay out there an extra couple of days. So I'm sure I'm sure that was fully accurate. Well, uh, totally accurate. There's no question about that. I wanted to come back in the worst way. When you <laughs> well, when you look at uh, IU over that span, uh, obviously the win over Nebraska and then against Arizona over the weekend. Fish, you had the best view of anybody in our view on the television sets at home. You could tell Jalen Huchifino's absence was felt in that first half. Xavier Johnson gets in foul trouble. A 17-0 run happens for Arizona in that span. I think you got to give the Hoosiers credit and that they fought back, but where did you see the game get away from them, and is this a fixable uh, point of the season for Indiana as they get ready to go to the fog on Saturday? Well, I don't think there's any question it's fixable. Uh, this is the early part of the year. This is when you're learning. This is when you're trying to put everything together. Uh, it's when guys are getting used to one another, especially the newer guys. And there's no question that Jalen Hood Shafino, uh, his absence factored into this loss. But I, I think the biggest thing about this ball game. Uh, from my perspective, was the first 10 minutes. Uh, you can't fall into a 19-point uh, deficit at that point in the ball game and expect to be able to come back against a team of Arizona's caliber and win. It, you, you just can't do it. And uh, without doubt, Indiana got off to a slow start. They didn't shoot the ball very well at the beginning. Uh, they ended up knocking down, I think, 10 uh, three-point field goals in the game, but it was too little too late. And guys that were doing it, I Race Thompson had four of those. Uh, that's unusual to say the least. So you, you just look at it and you say, look, um, there's no question we got off to a slow start, whether that was because we went into the game rather casually or we just didn't uh, anticipate how good Arizona was, whatever the case may be. This is a basketball team that is still very much in the learning process. And it's a team that, uh, in my opinion, still has a long way to go. I, I think they're a really good team. I don't think there's any question. They've got a lot of talent on this ball club, but I still think they're trying to find themselves as a group right now. Hey, Fish, it's Brendan. First of all, congratulations. Secondly, I was in Vegas for a matter of like five days for the MLB winter meetings a few years ago. Anything more than three days in Vegas is just is just wild. Uh, my question, you led me right into it, about Race Thompson hitting four three-pointers. I know maybe you can't bank on that, but when he does shoot like that, what does that bring to the offense that can kind of loosen things up maybe for Trace Jackson Davis on the post? 
Well, I think it brings quite a bit, to say the least. I mean, if if you've got guys that can knock down the threes, but look, let's look at it for you know from that first ten minute period. Nobody Indiana wasn't making threes at that point, and and they they basically took Trace out of the ball game at that juncture with how they played defense because they were double and triple team teaming him at that point. Um, and then of course when the three points started, uh, three point shots started to drop, things changed, and Indiana was able to come back. They made it a 10-point game at halftime. In the second half, they got it to three. Uh, they got it to five a couple of times. Uh, they they literally had dug themselves just too deep a hole. And I will say this, Arizona is really good. <laughs> yeah. It's not like they're little sisters of the poor in any way, shape, or form. This is a really good basketball team. And uh, Indiana, I give them credit for making the bounce back that they did. But it just wasn't enough. And when you dig that kind of a hole against a team like that, it's almost impossible. Don Fisher, the voice of the Hoosiers, nice enough to join us. Don, I don't want to overreact to this, and I want to get your clarity on it since you've obviously seen the team and their growth this entire season as they continue to grow through the early portions of it. It felt like at times, this is an understatement, the bigs had their way uh, down low against Indiana. How much of that was just the fast-paced nature of everything wearing down on Indiana? And how much of that is maybe an area where when they have matchups like Zach Eady and other bigs in the Big Ten that you're going to have to really knuckle down and learn from this? Well, I think that's the key. I think learning from this opportunity, because the, the bigs for Arizona were really good. I'm DeBellis is a terrific player. Balo is a guy that I don't think will ever play in the NBA. Not necessarily because he's not capable He's just not as athletic or as explosive as those kinds of athletes now in the NBA are. And look at Kofi Coburn. He's not in the NBA. Uh, why? Because he's not. He's kind of a plotter, a big, strong, physical guy, but he's not that athletic type guy that they're looking for these days. But Balo was terrific in this ball game. He had 15 points. Every time he touched the basketball, he was a factor. And that's going to be a problem for this Indiana ball club. If Trace Jackson Davis, Race Thompson, uh, Malik obviously is is a young guy, but I still think, and he's kind of had plateaued here a little bit as a freshman uh, in the last two or three ball games. Hasn't played quite what we saw in the early part of the season, but again, that's part of being a freshman, learning the situation. So the bigs are going to have to get, just do a better job. There's no question about that. Uh, Trace Jackson Davis included. I know he's. He's a talented kid, and there's no doubt about the fact that he's been here for four years now, and he's a better player now than he ever has been previously. But you've got to be able to step up to the plate when the big boys come to town. And obviously Indiana had that from him last year in the Big Ten tournament. Those last three games he played in the Big Ten tournament were spectacular. And that's more of what we need to see out of Trace Jackson Davis on a consistent basis. Fish, I know early on in the season Mike Woodson got a question about Indiana's schedule and formatted the answer as to say we tried to bring this schedule as close to the field the NCAA tournament as possible so you play at Xavier you beat number 18 North Carolina you get a good test against number 10 Arizona as you talked about and now coming up you get to visit number six Kansas so bringing all those matchups together what do you think that can help with most as you get towards March if you're Mike Woodson getting to face this big group of talent 
Well, I just think that anytime you face the really good teams in the non-conference portion of the schedule, it just helps you build toward the end of the season. And I've always felt that way. I've, I've thought that Indiana's schedule in the past has been a little weak at times as far as non-conference ball games are concerned. I don't think you learn as much from some of these lesser ball games. I think you learned a lot more. You don't have to play every game against a, a top 10 or 15 type team, but you should play teams that are still comparable to your conference, if you know what I'm saying here. And I honestly think that that's one thing that Indiana has to do is upgrade that schedule uh, and not be playing teams from the SWAC or the MEAC or some of these other lesser conferences that you're not going to get a real tussle from. And I think you learn from those tussles that you have in the early part of the season. I think that's yeah, – and, yeah, you're going to play some of the teams that are not that great and that kind of thing, but it can't be a majority of your games. I think you've got to get – yeah, some really good mid-majors to come to your school or go to their school, whatever the case may be. I still think playing a, a Ball State or an Indiana State, those ty- types of teams in your own state, I think they give you real tests because those kids all want to beat Indiana. And I think sometimes that we miss the boat in that regard. I think that that's why some of the time that Indiana hasn't progressed like we'd like to see them. Don, in postgame, Coach Woodson was asked about the offense, and his counter was that, well, you know, we, we can't give up that many points on the defensive end. Offense didn't play that poorly. You're going to have a tough challenge to Brendan's point against Kansas on Saturday. A quick turnaround with that. Obviously, no updates yet on Jalen hood Shafino, but how do they turn around and try to adjust and get this defense back to where they want to with another top 10 opponent uh, in Kansas in a road environment? this weekend? Well, I'm not a coach. Uh, I can only tell you that I think defense is effort. I think it's, it's effort and toughness. And if those two areas aren't there, you're not going to beat people that are of this caliber. So you're going to have to come out and play your best defensive game. You're going to have to play much better than you did in the game against Arizona. And you got to follow the game plan. I, I, I can't answer this question in the sense of a coaching perspective. Right. I can only answer from the perspective of an announcer. A guy's been around right. a while and seen it. Uh, I just think you have to match whatever the other team puts out there. And a lot of times I haven't seen that from Indiana. I certainly didn't see it in the Rutgers game, I thought it's a perfect example of why Indiana got beat by Rutgers. They did not match their intensity level and the and the and the toughness that they put out on the floor, and that's something that this team has got to learn to do. Fish, last thing for me, and you know, Jimmy talked about the physicality of those two games, but I know the schedule is the schedule. But when you play Rutgers and Nebraska, you get a little taste of the Big Ten and just how physical the league is. Can those two games help you going into these massive non-conference contests against the likes of Arizona and Kansas? Absolutely. I, I think there's no question about that. I think that's that's how you learn. I mean, l- let's face it. Uh, again, playing some of these other lesser teams uh, and that, that Indiana's played in the past and even this year. I mean, when you look at the four games that Indiana is playing against the top-flight competition and then add in the two Big Ten games and the rest of the, com- or, uh, the, rest of the schedule that Indiana plays – no comparison, uh, in my opinion. So I think that that's one of the reasons I think you've got to play, you've got to upgrade your schedule a little bit more. And I think Indiana certainly could have done that this year, or they should have done that this year. But again, some of these schedules are put into place two or three years in advance, and, and there's simply no way to do it any other way. Don, thank you again so much for making time for us. Congrats on the Schenkel Award once again and for all you do for the world of broadcasting. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Enjoy the fog on Saturday. The world of broadcasting. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. High praise here, Fish. Congrats, Fish. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. That is the voice of the Hoosiers, Don Fisher.
nice enough to join us on the Motor Shop in Fishers hotline. Go see the Motor Shop in Fishers. Go to themotorshop.com. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Pacers, homestand did not start the way they wanted it to. Well, it did, I guess, on Friday with a win over the Wizards, but following that, the Nets come into town. Second time they've seen them this year, they fall 136-133. And now a matchup against the Miami Heat tonight. Potentially, assuming he's listed as active, he's still listed on the injury report, but potentially the return of Victor Oladipo for the first time since his trade away from the Pacers. The voice for Bally Sports, Chris Denary, nice enough to take some time with us today. Chris, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you guys? Doing great. Uh, thank you again for making the time, as always. Uh, your observations got a W, obviously, on Friday night, and then uh, Rick Carlisle obviously frustrated with the 136 points given up and particularly the dominance on the glass that uh, the Nets gave them on Saturday night. Yeah, those are uh, oftentimes the scary games. I mean, they were without their five starters, their top seven scores, but they've got guys that are hungry, and, and you saw that especially in the fourth quarter. A guy like Cam Thomas, uh, who was a terrific scorer at LSU, was a rotational player last year but really hasn't played that much this year. I mean, he just went off. Uh, They went 15 for 20 in the fourth quarter, um, and the Pacers just didn't play with enough force. Um, You know, it's uh, I don't want to compare it because the Pacers are a different team than Golden State, but, you know, it's what happened last Monday. The Pacers go into San Francisco, no Halliburton, no Turner, uh, and, you know, Andrew Nemhart has a 31-point game and the Pacers beat Golden State. What I've said is there are a lot of talented players in this league, and and uh, I think the parity is probably as good as we've seen it in some time. When you look at the standings, there are a lot of teams right around 500. Um, you know, look at the Miami Heat. They had the best record in the East last year, and they're 12-15. and 15. So um, each and every night, you just got to be ready to go and, you know, to give up. 29 offensive rebounds and 37 second chance points on a night guys where offensively it was your best night of the year. Uh, You shoot 55% from the field, hit 21 threes. Tyrese Halliburton goes for 35, hit seven threes. Uh, You know, offensively you did more than enough to win, but uh, you, you have to be much better defensively than they were on Saturday night. No question. Chris, it's Brendan. Yeah, I was going to say, just like last year in mid-January when they went on the road and beat the Lakers and the Warriors on back-to-back nights, that Golden State game was in overtime. It was like the Kiefer Sykes game, you know? So you you just never know what's going to happen in this league. But to just put a bow on, Chris, the Western road swing, what do you think maybe Rick Carlisle learned about his team most from that long trip that started basically at Thanksgiving and just wrapped up a couple days ago? Yeah, I do think, you know, they've realized that, you know, with the youth, they've got some depth. I mean, when you have, you know, somebody like Andrew Nemhard who scores 31 uh, in that Golden State game, Benedict Matherin has been solid all year long. He's only been in single digits twice as a rookie. Um, so when healthy, I think, you know, this team has some depth and has a has a really good young core. Um, you know, Miles Turner has played really well. I mean, if you look at his numbers, they're all career best. 
uh, 18 points, eight rebounds, uh, shooting 55% from the field and over 40% from three. Uh, Halliburton's playing well. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of good things. Uh, if you would have told any of us, I think, uh, back in August or September, that after that seven-game road trip, you'd be over 500 looking at the schedule, uh, you would have taken it. Now, the, the schedule gets much more difficult now. Uh, you know, Miami tonight, Golden State here Wednesday. You go to Cleveland, who's off to a great start. The Knicks, uh, Miami again, and Boston and the Clippers. So, uh, it, you know, this series, this schedule, there, there, there's really no off nights, right? This, uh, I think one of the funniest stories that I remember when Brad Stevens uh, took the job in Boston and I ran into him that first year, and that was a year I think Boston won like 20-some games. Hmm. And no disrespect to another school, but he goes, look, uh, there are no Elons on the schedule in the NBA. Uh, there are 29 other opponents that uh, get paid just like everybody else. So that's the thing is in the NBA, there are plenty of talented players waiting for their opportunity, whether it's on the Pacers or whether it's on you know the opposition. And, and I think you see that each and every night. Chris, expectations going into the season were a mixed bag depending on where you looked. Some people thought they were going to be back in the lottery and as a you know a, a, one of the teams that were taken, Victor Wembanyama, others thought that, hey, this is a nice young core. Maybe they can make some noise as the season goes on. Uh, they proved the latter through the first stretch of the season and now we're starting to enter uh, that little second window of the campaign. What have you learned over these last 10? Obviously, the, the West Coast trip was tough, like Brendan mentioned important to take care of business when you can at home but as you mentioned the schedule is getting tougher and tougher along this stretch what have you learned and what do you need to see out of this group to know that uh, they can arrange themselves in a position to get back to the postseason well they've, they've got to be better defensively i mean there's no question about that they struggled early and then i thought in november uh they were a top 10 defense and you know maybe have, have taken a little bit of a step back here uh, especially at the end of that road trip with uh, the Sacramento game, the Utah game, and of course uh, Saturday night's game against Brooklyn. So I think I think that's that's an area that they really need to you know make sure they're better. And uh, surprisingly, they were a pretty good rebounding team early, and that has gone away. I think they've been out rebounded eight of the last eleven, and that that will really get you in trouble because as I said, guys. You look at the offensive numbers. When you shoot 55% from the field, make 21 threes, uh, you figure you should win the game. But but when you look at uh, some of the other metrics and, and giving up the second chance points and the offensive rebounds, you, you, you've got to do a better job there. So, you know, there's no question about that. Um, you know, tonight it'll be interesting because traditionally the Miami and the Pacer games have been very low scoring. Um, you know, really games in the 90s because of the way that Miami likes to play. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of pace the Pacers are able to play against the Heat tonight. Chris, you're leading me right into my next question. By the way, Chris Denary, the television voice of the Indiana Pacers, is with us on the guest line, brought to you by the Mower Shop and Fishers and themowershop.com for all your snowblowers, commercial and residential mowers, plus service and power tools. Yeah, so Chris, the last time Miami was at Gamebridge Fieldhouse, November the 4th, Pacers win that one 101-99. To be fair, Jimmy Butler did not play for Miami, but Jalen Smith did not have a point that game. Chris Duarte... That was the game he hurt his ankle. And then Ben Matherin, that was really the coming out type game where he scored 23 points in 37 minutes. So do you expect that same type of score right around 100 points or so for either club? 
Well, that you know, I was looking back at last year. The Pacers uh, beat the Heat in overtime, uh, and it was a low-scoring game. In fact, I made a note here. Uh, since 2021, uh, the combined points between the Heat and the Pacers are 197. So that means both teams are r- roughly under 100 each. And that's the second lowest in a building other than when Boston and New York have played four times at TD Garden. So it, it just it tells you that traditionally in this series, they have been low-scoring games. And, you know, for Indiana, they, they, they've just got to get back to, uh, you know, from a defensive standpoint, you can't, ha- you can't give up 136 uh, like you did the other night. I mean, I think, you know, it was more manageable. You give up 111 to Washington, yeah, you can live with that. I mean, I think – there are good offensive teams in this league. And, you know, to think that uh, in 2022-23 that you're going to hold teams into the 90s, that's just not the way the game is played anymore. I mean, there's more three-point attempts. I mean, the, the scores are going to be higher. So, you know, my metric is is you, you need to keep them um, in, in, you know, the one, 105 to 110 range. If you can do that on a nightly basis, you're going to be in pretty good shape. Chris, where for you, not just against the Heat, but just over this stretch, because you could tell post-game with Coach Carlisle there was a lot of frustration on the defensive end, and I know you quoted it earlier, but average, or giving up right around 116 points a game, give up 29 offensive rebounds to the Nets, that was their most since 2015 in a game. Where does that start, and how do you kind of snowball this effort of getting things back to a proper standard? I mean, maybe not best in the league, but definitely not towards the bottom end of the league where they're at right now in terms of points per game. Yeah, you, you've got to be, from a rebounding standpoint, it's got to happen at all five positions. I mean, you just can't look at Turner and Smith and those guys. I mean, you, you've got to rebound from the guard positions. You, you, you know, you've got to do that. It, it, what's interesting, too, is is if you look at certain teams in the league, some some teams prioritize offensive rebounds and some don't. And you know, in in this day and age, Quinn made the mention the other night is is it's a little bit of a fundamental thing, but it's sort of the way the game has been taught maybe over the last few years is guys don't block out as much, and so you know I think that's still the biggest thing. Whether you're blocking out or not, you got to be physical. You got to have a body on somebody. You've got to make sure that you you know you keep guys away. The biggest thing was, you know, I talked to to Ron Norton after the game, one of the assistants, and, you know, the first thing he mentioned was, I think there were a couple of offensive rebounds on missed free throws, and you just can't have that. So uh, that that's something that they've got to do a better job. And, and, again, if you can clean that up, they do enough other things well uh, to win games. Chris, the athleticism of the bench, I think, has been evident over the last few weeks. Guys like O'Shea Brissett, guys like Aaron Neesmith, guys like Isaiah Jackson, I know sometimes their minutes are a bit fluctuated and it really depends on the night, but having the athleticism, just let's call it those of those three guys, how much does it help the starting five that you can bring one of them in and kind of get the same defensive intensity on some of the stars from the other team? Well, I think that's that's one of the biggest things that this team has over past teams in in recent history is they're just way more athletic. And in this day and age, you, you've got to have that. And you know, the Pacers are one of the top teams in forcing turnovers and in scoring points off turnovers. And a lot of times that happens because of the second unit. I mean, T.J. McConnell came in Saturday night, had four steals. Uh, Neesmith, as you said, is a good athlete and a good defender. So. 
that's sort of the mix and the match that Rick Carlisle has to use when he looks at his starters, when he looks at his reserves. I don't really get caught up in who starts. Um, I get more, I, I look more at the combinations that they're going to use throughout the game. And then, for instance, you know, the last couple of nights on Friday and Saturday night in closing situations, O'Shea Brissett's been playing pretty well, so he's been out there uh, instead of Jalen Smith. Some nights it's been Benedict Matherin. So, really, I think that's the way that Rick Carlisle looks at it. I mean, on Saturday night, the, the starters got off to a slow start other than Tyrese Halliburton. He was quick to take those four guys out, put four bench guys in that brought some energy and and kept Tyrese on the floor because he was shooting the ball so well. So I just think at times, guys, it's, you know, Rick Carlisle will say it's a possession by possession. It's uh, quarter by quarter. Um, that's how he has to look at things on a particular night with uh, the kind of rotations that he's going to use. Kristen Airy, TV voice of the Pacers for Bally Sports, nice enough to join us. Chris, it's a unique situation whether a former player comes back into town, especially unique with how topsy-turvy at times uh, Oladipo's tenure here ended. What are you expecting? Obviously, to be a Monday night crowd. It's a big matchup, old rival in the heat. A lot of bad blood over the last 10 years with that franchise. But what type of environment are you expecting from Gambridge Fieldhouse and the overall vibe with Victor Oladipo making his return for the first time since that trade? Yeah, I think it'll be. I mean, it'll be a lot of fun. I mean, you you love the rivalry. Heat Pacers has meant so much over the years, and even though faces and names have changed, I mean, it's still those two jerseys out on the floor. And I think you go back, you know, to twelve, thirteen, and fourteen. Those were three really good series, two in the Eastern Conference Finals that you know Miami was able to get. So, yeah, I mean, Victor has not been back in the building um, since he left. Um, you know, he, he went to Miami and last year was out much of the season due to injury, uh, was out uh, early in the year this year due to injury. So, it, it, you know, it, he he had some really good memories here. And he, he you know, I, I look back to the 2017-18 year when his first year when the Pacers took uh, Cleveland to seven, uh, you know, that was an outstanding run. But, you know, times are different. Uh, you know, Pacers are firmly entrenched with the group that they have. Um, you know, Victor's in Miami, and we'll let it play out tonight and see how it goes. Chris, the injury report tonight for the Pacers, they're without Chris Duarte. How soon is he uh, to returning to the floor? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Rick Carlisle before the game on Saturday night really had no word. I mean, I think um, a few weeks ago they were hoping that he would be back during that seven-game road trip, but that never happened. And He's definitely somebody they miss. I mean, he had a 30-point game in Brooklyn uh, just prior to going down with the injury. Uh, gives the Pacers another perimeter shooter, gives them some size, and again, would, would create more depth out at the wing position. So, uh, no word yet. Um, you know, he's been out um, in pregame warm-ups at times, doing individual work before the game starts. Uh, I've seen him at practice, so hopefully it's uh, sooner rather than later. Chris, this is the last one from me, and I was just looking at the last box score, by the way, from the Heat Pacers game in early November. Duncan Robinson had zero points, missed all of his threes, probably can't bank on that happening again, but he's listed as probable with an ankle injury. My last question is about the matchup, Chris, we're going to see on the block, Bam Adebayo versus Miles Turner, and the way that Miles has played this year, the way that Adebayo has led the charge inside for the Heat, I mean, that has to be one of the better center matchups you're going to get in the Eastern Conference. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it really came out to a draw, which I thought was good for the Pacers the first time they played. Uh, Adebayo had 18 points and 10 rebounds. Miles had 16 and 7 and 3 blocks. And if you can do that, um, you know, th- th- that's a win. Because when you look at individual positions, though it's a team game, you want to try to win your individual battle. And the Pacers will have their hands full. Tyler Hero had 29 the last time he was here. And I was looking, he, he's had five or six of 20 or more. Uh, in his last six, shoot, uh, averaging 25. Uh, Butler has played in four of the last five. Uh, he's been out a lot due to injury. He's averaging 25. So they've got a trio in Hero, Butler, and Adebayo that can all put points on the board. And then you sprinkle around Max Struess. Robinson hasn't played a lot this year. I mean, he's really fallen out of the rotation. Uh, but, you know, this is a Heat team that has struggled this year. Um, interestingly enough, shooting the three. That's been one of their strengths over the past few years. But, you know, it's the way the season has gone. Go back to Saturday night. The Pacers, if they win that game, and again, I know it's early in the season. We're a third of the way through. They're in fourth place in the East. They lose the game. They drop all the way to seventh. Um, when When Golden State and the Pacers played last Monday, Golden State entered the night sixth in the West a loss to the Pacers, and all of a sudden they were 10th. And I think that goes to what I was talking about, guys, just the parity and the way all of these teams are bunched up in the East and the West. If you go on a little bit of a winning streak, you can really climb fast. If you lose two, three in a row, you can drop fast as well. Chris, to your point about the parody, Chris Denary, nice enough to join us on the Mower Shop in Fishers hotline. Go to themowershop.com or visit the Mower Shop in Fishers for all your snowblower, lawnmower, apartments, equipment, business, and more. Chris, when you look at that parody that's present in both conferences, and as you mentioned, you can go up quick, but you can also fall pretty quickly as well. How long into this season before you and the rest of us will be comfortable with knowing what the identity of this team is and if they can be a playoff team this year? Well, I think, you know, a lot of times you look at about 25 games in that you have a real feel for what you're looking at, and and that's where we are, completed roughly a third of the season on Saturday. Uh, But things change because of road trips and home games and and your schedule. So I, I think we'll know more. Uh, over the next two weeks as this team hits uh, the first of the year in 2023. Um, I, I've seen a lot from this group. I mean, I've been very impressed with, with how they've, for the most part, handled things. I mean, the other night um, was only the second game they've lost when they've had a lead in the fourth quarter. The only other game this year was the Denver game at home. If you remember that, they mm-hmm. had a late lead. So I think they've done a really good job uh, of of putting themselves in position to win games because – uh, again, we I don't think anybody was sure what we were going to see when the season started because uh, you're playing so many young guys. I mean, think back to the Golden State game. Think back to the Minnesota game. Um, the Pacers, in some instances, were playing three rookies. I mean, Kendall Brown was getting some minutes in critical situations. So um, I think we'll know a lot more. I mean, we know a lot now, but as the season progresses and you know you, you put more games uh, in the record book, I think you'll have a little better feel when we get to January 1 uh, what we're looking at. Chris, this is your 17th year covering the Pacers, and I don't want to 
step away from anything else with the rest of this rookie class, but the the shiny new toy, the new objects, like, ooh, I want to see what this is going to be in Benedict Matherin, rightfully so drawing eyes. You're not going to put a bow in his season yet until it's done, but through these 27 games or so of the year, what have been your takeaways with him? Maybe not compared to other stars that you've seen or budding stars, but what have been your takeaways that you've seen from him out of the rookie from Arizona? Well, just his confidence. Uh, I mean, he's he, he he plays with a swagger and a bravado uh, in a very positive way. He's a very confident individual, and even when he gets knocked down and even when he's going through stretches like he is right now, he's not shot the three very well the last uh, few weeks. Um, he still takes those shots because you need to take those shots, and he attacks the basket. Uh, you just don't see rookies get to the free throw line as much as he has. And and so I think, you know, he's 20 years old and you just sort of think about, hey, what's what's he going to be like in the next three to four years? And then you say the same thing about Andrew Nemhard, uh, what we saw at Golden State, what we saw over a five game stretch where he averaged about 16 points per game. Uh, you have to feel pretty good with those two guys that as they mature, um, as uh, they get even more productive over the next two, three years. Those two guys are going to be pretty special in a Pacers uniform. Chris, we know you're in the grind of the regular season. Always appreciate you making the time for us. Have a good call tonight. Enjoy it and look forward to talking to you down the road. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Chris. That is the voice of the Pacers on Bally Sports. Chris Derry, nice enough to take some time with us again on the Mower Shop in Fisher's Hotline. Go to themowershop.com. Or visit them at the Motor Shop in Fishers for all your residential, commercial, whether it's snowblowers, lawnmowers, whatever the case may be, the Motor Shop has you covered. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com. And talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. We are going to take the guest line brought to you by the Mower Shop and Fishers and themowershop.com to the bay. The play-by-play voice of the Oakland Athletics, a guy that has played a major part in my career, helping me out with baseball, play-by-play, all kinds of great tips. And listening in during the summers, it is Ken Korak, who has been on with myself and Jimmy before. Ken, great to catch up with you, my friend. And I guess just right off the bat, hot stove in Major League Baseball. The winter meetings just finished up. Your thoughts, Ken, on what the market has been right now with Trey Turner getting $300 million, Judge 360 It's been quite something. Yeah, you're right, Brendan. Thank you. I'm. Yeah, it's amazing amount. Amazing amount of money that's been spent for sure. And also, I think you look at the years too. Uh, you're talking about plus three hundred million dollars and uh, players getting ten years, eleven years. Uh, so it really has been an explosion in terms of the contracts. That's for sure. Ken, has that caught? front offices by surprise or I just pundits of the game by surprise the particular guys to your point that are in their 30s are not only nailing down these high dollar amount deals but also long-term 10-year deals that you know maybe five seven years ago teams might be more hesitant to give those out yeah I think that's a great point I think because teams were reluctant if a player was 31 32 and thinking what would that player give them uh, when he reaches his late 30s or, or early 40s even, perhaps. But 
I think sometimes the, the teams look at, at that as the cost of doing business. If you really want to get the player and you have to go to 10 years and you're, you're that intent on signing the player, you know, I, I really think the teams think that if we can get seven or eight really productive years and the last two or three years aren't so great, that that's the cost of doing business, that you give up those last two or three years just because you understand or you feel like that's the cost of doing business to acquire that player. Ken Korak, the play-by-play voice of the Oakland A's, is with us. Ken, does that, to you, further maybe separate the big market clubs from the small market clubs? Because I would imagine a team like Tampa, a team like Oakland, would be a little bit more reluctant to give a guy that amount of years with that amount of cash as opposed to New York or Chicago. So what does that do to the market, you think? Well, it does, and it's always been the case, I think, so this is nothing new. Uh, I'm kind of rooting for the Twins because, you know, they're still in there on Carlos Correa. Yeah. So I think it's healthy for the, the sport when it seemed like the Twins can step forward and uh, make a move. I mean, they're, they're really a fan on, on re-signing Correa. But, uh, you know, I think in the case of a team like the A's with our ball club, um, I think a lot of it depends on where your revenue stream comes from. Uh, and, and, you know, the A's need a new ballpark. I mean, that's the biggest thing as far as Oakland is concerned. There's a lot of money in the game going around, I think especially because of the TV contracts and new media and all the digital aspects of baseball and, and merchandising. So um, I think you're always going to have a disparity. I think when, when it really becomes accentuated is when you have a situation like where the A's are at, where their revenues don't match up with uh, the market size that they're in. Ken, I was going to ask you about Correa, but just to touch on the ballpark, is is there an update there on if that is further along to getting built or really in the last few months has it gone kind of quiet? Well, we're hopeful, that's for sure. And, you know, I'm bullish on the A's and I'm, I'm bullish on the Bay Area as a two-team market. And the A's have been in the postseason, uh, you know, parenthetically 11 times beginning with 2000. So they've really been successful. It's been pretty remarkable what they've done, but uh, you know, right now they're on the, the two tracks. They're still talking to the people in Vegas, talking to the mm. people in Oakland. But uh, they're kind of in this limbo position, which is not a real positive place to be in. So I'm hopeful that, uh, that a decision will come down uh, fairly soon and the ball club can really have a direction and move forward and uh, have some positive things in the not too distant future. Ken has the years-long conversation about trying to get an arena or a new stadium established or, or, or what the future holds for Oakland? Has that at all been, been a shadow around the organization as they're trying to complete objectives such as the winter meetings, or are they at a point with their operations where it's just a storyline that's always going to be talked about because it's been such a prominent issue for so long and they're comfortable still running the day-to-day? No, I think it's, it's for sure. Um, I think the former... And David Forsey, as general manager, talked about it during the winter meetings. When you, at that point, when the A's have a, a real solid direction as far as where they're going to be in a stadium and all the plans are in place, then, of course, you can budget for the future. And I think you always want to know, kind of have an idea of where your revenues are going to be at. And so the A's have talked openly about that. So that will really give them the chance to have a more solid path going forward and a sense of what their revenues are going to look like. Ken, back to the market just briefly. So the winter meeting shortened by a day. I don't know how much that actually did to change things, but were you surprised that Correa and a guy like Dansby Swanson came out of the winter meeting still unsigned? 
No, not really. No, not, I mean, there was plenty of activity for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I think with, with some clubs, they look, maybe they have their top two or three choices. And maybe your top choice is shortstop with somebody else, but now you have to pivot. And so the agents aren't going to give in and just have their guy sign for less than what they think that player is worth. So um, I was not surprised at all. And I think that the market is still really hot for guys like Correa. Carlos Rodon uh, might be looking for a seven-year deal with a kind of a checkered injury history. So, uh, no, I think, it, I think it's a hot market. It'll stay that way. Ken Korak, nice enough to join us, voice of the athletics, taking some time with us. Ken, a lot of uh, rule changes continue to be reviewed by the MLB and the MLBPA year over year. Uh, got a question from our audience from Matt Allen. Wanted to know if you think that the MLB is trending towards, and I know this is a very polarizing topic, but the idea of an electronic uh, balls and strikes system, maybe not obviously this coming season, but in the years to come, if that's a realistic trend as they continue to experiment with different things in the minor leagues. I don't think it's going to happen in the big leagues. What I do think you'll see will be a challenge system. So I'm really dubious as far as going like full on with the computerized strike zone like they've had in some of the minor leagues. But I do think you'll see kind of a, maybe a, a hybrid of that from the standpoint that you'll still have home plate umpires calling balls and strikes but maybe the managers will get three or four challenges during a game. I think that's going to happen. I think that'll happen as soon as 2024. Mm-hmm. Just my guess, but I, I do believe that's going to happen. I mean, Ken, I've texted you about this multiple times through last summer with the South Bend Cubs with the pitch clock coming along and um, you know the limiting of a pitcher being able to throw over to first base. I mean, you get three opportunities too, and if you – don't pick off a guy on the third. He goes to second automatically, which was an interesting rule through the summer. But the pitch clock really, Ken, did a massive thing to shorten games. I mean, we were averaging, no joke, man, two hours and five minutes sometimes to play a ball game. We played, we played six or seven games in under two. So I don't know if that's going to translate to the big leagues exactly that way, but your thoughts on the pitch clock coming in? I, think, I don't think it'll be quite that dramatic in the big leagues, but I think it'll have a major effect, and I'm all in for it. Uh, I was never in favor of these things like uh, the shifting and the rules involving outlawing the shifts, but I'm all in. I'm 100% in. I think it'll be a good thing for the game. What is on your wish list uh, the remainder of this offseason for the Athletics, Ken, and how do you feel about the moves they've already made as they establish themselves for 2023? Well, you know, they haven't done a whole lot, so I think they're still in that, that kind of rebuilding mode. So the most important thing for me as far as their club is to have that sense that the next really good team is down the road, that we can see on the horizon the really good players that will make up the next contending team for the A's because even when the A's have struggled in the past, they've turned things around pretty quickly. Um, They're kind of in a deeper hole right now than they have been in the past. You know, they have several holes, and I think they're going to be a little more aggressive uh, you know, the, the, the uh, work stoppage last year um, it really affected their ability to make moves in the delayed start to the season, uh, the lockout. Uh, so I think they're going to be a little more active than they were last year. But the most important thing to me is that the young players develop and we can see a nucleus that A's fans can really hang their hats on. Ken Gorak, the radio play-by-play voice of the Oakland A's with us on the guest line, brought to you by the Mower Shop and Fishers and the themowershop.com. 
Ken, this came out just a few hours ago. Sean Manaya is heading across the bay, going to the San Francisco Giants. I think I read two years, $10 million. Of course, a Valparaiso native. He played at Indiana State here locally and pitched that no-hitter for the A's back in 2018. So, Manaya going to the National League and across the bay of the Giants, Ken. What do you think Oakland's going to miss out on him most? Well, you know, he was with the Padres last year. so Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. So, he, he did come over from, from San Diego and was a free agent. Had a tough year where the Padres last year's ERA was almost five. You mentioned that no-hitter against the Red Sox, which is one of the you know, the great highlights for the, the A's in the last several years. Just an amazing night at the Oakland Coliseum. I think there's an opt-out in there. I think the money might be a little even more than what you had mentioned, Brendan. So they're looking for a bounce back from him, opt-out after the first year. Uh, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on the Giants to even make a bigger splash. They really were in on Aaron Judge. You know, they signed Mitch Hanniger, who's a good player, and he's from the Bay Area. But I think the Giants feel like they have to make one more really, like a really big move to feel like they had a, a successful offseason. Ken, last question on my end. You talked about at the top all the money being spent uh, across Major League Baseball. A lot of people oftentimes like to throw jabs at the MLB because, oh, the NBA and the NFL have more flair, more flavor. But what is what is the amount of money spent? And as you mentioned, stadiums being built and, and media rights deals still being fought after. Talk about the health of baseball as it stands in 2022. Well, I think this is going to be a really interesting year. Because just what you guys had mentioned with the rule changes. So this is really the most dramatic shift that we've seen in baseball, maybe even since the advent of the, the DH in the early 70s. So this, is, this may be a seminal year for baseball. So I think the game is still in really good shape. Obviously, we've seen that we've talked about the money that's been spent. So from a fiscal standpoint, the game is really healthy. And I think the way... We'll see how fans react to the rules changes and see how all this goes down this year. I think we'll go a long way toward determining kind of the, the direction baseball is headed. Ken, you got to see some pretty darn good ball clubs in the AL West this year. One of your division opponents, of course, World Series champions again, the Houston Astros, who win 106 games and they do what they do in the postseason. Heck of a run. Dusty Baker gets his first World Series, I guess, Ken, after seeing the Astros as often as you did in the regular season, why in your mind do you think they were the destined World Series champions? Well, I think because they were the best team. I mean, that's the obvious answer. But then I was thrilled for Dusty. I think this uh, solidifies his Hall of Fame candidacy. I think he was a Hall of Famer even before the year, but I think it was now uh, this has left little doubt. Uh, one of the great, classiest figures in the game for decades now. Then they went out and they signed Jose Abreu to play first base. You're right. So, even you know, they lost Verlander, but they still have so many good young arms. I don't think it's going to have a major impact their, their, their starting pitching, but I think they'll survive that. So they have a chance to be really good for the next several years. Uh, the Mariners went out and did some things that were really positive. Uh, they got Colton Wong to play second base. Uh, they traded for Teoscar Hernandez with Toronto. I think the Angels have improved their club. The Rangers are, you know, somewhat surprising that they gave uh, Jacob DeGrom five years. <laughs> I think like $185 million, right? So it's a pretty strong division, that's for sure. That is a whole lot of cash. Last thing, Ken, before we let you go, uh, one of the really, you mentioned the Hall of Fame. One of the really cool things of the Hall of Fame that happens yearly is the Ford Frick Award. Our good buddy Pat Hughes, the radio voice of the Cubs, picking that up. Just your thoughts on Pat going to Cooperstown. 
Well, thanks for asking. I, you know, I'm so thrilled for Pat. And I've known him for years. He's a guy from the Bay Area, the South Bay, uh, went to San Jose State, influenced by the, the great tr- uh, uh, family tree of Bay Area broadcasters, Bill King and Lon Simmons and Russ Hodges, who also received the Prick Award, John Miller, of course. So yeah. uh, he's incredibly deserving. And this was a special uh, uh, Frick ballot for me because so many – so many candidates, good friends of mine, guys I've kind of come up with in the business. So uh, they had a, they had the choices they had were <laughs> tremendous. I can't imagine it was a really hard ballot as far as narrowing down the you know the final selection. So, but Pat is really well deserving. Thrilled for him. That's awesome. Well, Ken, I know how much you learned from Bill King as well, and you guys were brought up in that era. So good for Pat and. Looking forward to hearing from you more as the summers go along, Ken. Ken Korak, the radio voice of the Oakland A's, is with us. Ken, appreciate the time. Hope you and the fam enjoy the holidays. Thanks, you guys. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Ken Korak, the play-by-play voice of the Oakland A's, who has been a major influence in my broadcast career. If anybody is ever thinking about becoming a play-by-play guy, highly recommend if you have the MLB package in your car, you're driving at 10 o'clock on a summer night, you can pick up an A's game starting at 7 o'clock. Ken Korak is one of the best. I'm running. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Gang, that's Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison, around the horn. He is the Iron Man of the Indianapolis sports media community, because he does it all. Greg Rakestraw joining us on the fan on the guest line, brought to you by the Mower Shop and Fishers, and themowershop.com for all your snowblowers, commercial and residential mowers, plus service and power tools. Rake, good to chat as always, my friend. Your thoughts as of 2.01 p.m. and Matt Ryan still being named the starting quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts. Um, perhaps I'm done trying to figure out this group this year. Um, just because, and again, you can argue because of the Titans lost yesterday that you are still mathematically alive for the AFC South because the Titans refused to put it away. But when you're at four eight and one, I would love to see them run with Sam Ellinger just to figure out exactly what you've got uh, in him. Maybe they've already made up their minds as to what Sam Ellinger is and Sam Ellinger isn't. Uh, I don't think we've had enough of a snapshot yet to know whether he can be a starting level quarterback or not in the National Football League. I have been all about playing the young guys these last four games. I'm in an effort to tank, but just to again give you a fully developed picture as to okay. What exactly is Sam Ellinger? What exactly is Desmond Patton? What exactly is Mike Strong? What exactly is Nick Cross, et cetera? So at this point, you just kind of shrug your shoulders and move on. Rig, Jeff mentioned last week and kind of reiterated it today that they have four games left to play for, everything on the line. And I don't know if he's referring to just him proving that he can coach in the National Football League and that he belongs here, and that's why he's sticking with Matt Ryan. But from a overall personnel standpoint, to your point – it's hard for, in my mind, Colts fans to look at this and anything but a clear indication that they, the Colts, have seen everything they want of out of Sam Ellinger. Because I guess I get it. You're right. They still have 
little sliver of playoff hopes, but if that if they fall on against the Vikings on Saturday and that's off the table completely and Correct. they still stick with Matt Ryan, I feel like that's telling the fan base, hey, we don't have the quarterback right. at West 56th. That's the only logical sense to make of that. And again, I, I, I would probably lean towards that direction as well, but I've got a four-game window to know exactly what I've got. Well, maybe not even that far, but at least I have a better idea as to what I've got. But again, there's a reason why they, they pay me for other jobs than coaching the football team, <laughs> put it that way. Rake, as we approach Saturday afternoon football in Minnesota, I guess you could say one of the bright spots of the team, if there is one, has been how they have played defensively oftentimes this year. Not in the fourth quarter against Dallas, that's for sure, but a lot of other times, too. Is the defense good enough to handle what Justin Jefferson has done this year? I'm not sure there's any defense good enough to handle what Justin Jefferson has done this year. But at the same time, if you look at the two best teams in the National Football League, I think we could say the Kansas City Chiefs and Philadelphia Eagles, they're not the top two. They're two of the top three or two of the top four. Colts held both those defenses, both those offenses in check, you know, during the course of this season. Um, you know, the Vikings maybe are regressing the mean a little bit, um, kind of like the Giants have done, kind of like the Seahawks have done. Uh, Jefferson can really play. You've got a guy like Gilmore that, that can certainly help slow him down. But do I think the Colts will keep him in check on Saturday? Absolutely not, because seemingly nobody else is doing that either. Rick, I still don't think it's fair from a Matt Ryan perspective if you're truly scouting him as well these final four games and seeing even regardless of what you do in the draft in April, if he's still a part of this team next year, the offensive line issues to me have been a major microcosm for his issues across the board this season. But when you look at how Ryman's played the last couple of games and, and hoping you can find continuity there combined with the fact that the Vikings are giving up the most yards per game and the most yards per play in terms of a passing attack on their defensive front. If they underperform again this week, where does your outlook go on this offense in the final three weeks and beyond if they're not able to put up decent numbers in the passing game against a Vikings team that appears to be reeling in that department? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, given what the Colts have done offensively on a week-in, week-out basis, whom the Colts are playing, if it matters. To be blunt about this. Sure. I mean, I mean, let's think about this. We have felt good about the Colts' offense for how many quarters this year? For the entirety of the Jacksonville game, uh, for the second half of the Titans game, for the first quarter of the last game they played against the Cowboys. I mean, it's it's somewhat comforting to know that the Colts are playing a defense that has given up a few more points this year and has been a bit susceptible to the pass. But that doesn't mean the Colts are good enough to take advantage of said opportunity. So, again, at this point, we, when you're 13 games in, man, you are what you are. And what the Colts have been has been an offense that has produced points consistently in the teens – that's not good. And a team that has consistently shot it, found a way to shoot itself in the foot with turnovers. Also, not good. Uh, and it's a game on the road against a team that's going to be a playoff team. Again, that does not largely bode well for this football team. But will we see this Colts team make some plays? Yes, because that's what happens to the average to bad teams in the National Football League. You know, The team that, that this group so much reminds me of, and this is – not a great comparison, Colts fans. Uh, would be the 2017 Colts team that won four games. 
Two of those against the Houston Texans. That was the year that Jacoby Brissett was the starter from week two on after the injury to Andrew Luck and after the disastrous Scott Tolzien performance as a starting quarterback against the L.A. Rams. Um, and, and the reason I bring that up is that that Colts team had a lot of leads in the second half. In other words, the average to bad teams generally have some guys that can make plays too. So I can see the Colts making some plays on Saturday. But is it going to be enough to put together a full performance to win a football game? The recent, uh, the recent odds would tell you probably not. Rake, I wanted to get back to something you mentioned earlier about Sam Ellinger and really not getting a look at him if this is the case in the next four weeks, if he doesn't dress. But does him not dressing and Nick Foles being the backup quarterback, does that lead you down the path that you had aforementioned about they maybe think Ellinger is already not a guy they're going to use, so why not have Foles as a backup just in case? I'll revert back to my earlier comments. I'm not sure there's much sense you can make of the Colts quarterback position right now. (laughs) Um, Just because, again, you've seen now 11 games worth of Matt Ryan. Some good, a lot of bad, all of it his fault, not necessarily. For whatever reason, you haven't played Foles to this point. You play Ellinger and then decide to go in the opposite direction. And again... Was Ellinger as good as he was, you know, is he really as good as he looked against the Washington Commanders? Probably not. Is he really as bad as he looked against the Patriots? Dear God, I hope not. Uh, is He's clearly somewhere in the middle. Again, do I think he's a starting caliber quarterback of the National Football League? Probably not, but don't know that for sure. So in terms of what the Colts depth chart at quarterback looks like, again, it's, it's one of those things you just literally kind of, Shrug your shoulders, throw your hands up, and say, okay, because apparently different people look at it in completely different ways. Greg, how does it change how we view this team and just the direction of what needs to be done this offseason moving forward when we joked about at the top, they still have a chance to make the playoffs? Well, the team with the better chance to make the playoffs in division is the Jaguars. If they go 2-1 and one yeah. and the Titans stumble, all of a sudden the team that bounced you last year and embarrassed you once already this season that was supposed to be behind you and still a couple years away is maybe in the playoffs. How does that change how we view the Colts and just the South as a whole if the Jaguars are able to... They don't have to do much, Greg. just got to go 2-1 two and one and then beat the Titans. It doesn't. It's the worst division in football, Jimmy. we're talking about a team that has a playoff chance that has a top 10 draft pick. That's what we're talking about. Um, You know, and where the Titans again, have this, have the gift of geography like Purdue in the big 10 West. They have this gift of geography and they proceed to fire the general manager and are reeling because of it. And again, the Jaguars are in a different spot. You know, the Jaguars are still a young football team, under a proven head coach in Doug Peterson. And so the fact that they are starting to gain some traction potentially shows you, hey, things are heading in the right direction in North Florida. But in terms of the way we view the division, trust me, that that story has been written. Even though we don't know who the division champ is yet, the story has been written. It's the worst division in the National Football League. I guess I want to re-clarify that slightly because I agree with you. I, I'm not saying the South is suddenly elevated to the top of uh, the AFC by any stretch of the imagination. What I mean is that you thought it was this, not you, but 
Colts fans or maybe the front office thought this was a two-horse race between the Titans and we're right there. We're always a contender. We're in the mix. We're going to win the South this year. And then all of a sudden, what people have been talking about since Trevor Lawrence got there was they're knocking on the door. Jacksonville might be turning a corner. And you talk about the experience with Doug Peterson and his staff. You make the playoffs as Jacksonville, even if it's the South, you're suddenly the third worst team in that division. And now you're back at the end of the line with the Texans in terms of where you're trying to go two, three years down the line. I would also say this, again, because this has been such a surprising season of struggle for the Colts, I'm not sure I've in, in my years of doing this that I have cared less about how the Colts stack up with other teams in the division. Because for me, it is about, okay, how do you fix this in the offseason? How do you rebuild this? Is this the first true rebuild this franchise has had in 11 years? So how they stack up versus the Titans, which is obviously in the perspective of, of Jim Irsay going into the season. How they stack up versus the Jaguars, how they stack up for the Texans. It's important, but the Colts have work to do just to get to the point where that is important. Right now, the conversation about the Colts needs to be, how do we stack up against the Indianapolis Colts? Do we have the proper pieces in place to be able to build something out of the ashes of this season going forward? And so, to me right now, it's not about how do the Colts look versus the Titans? How do the Colts look versus the Jaguars? How do the Colts look versus the Texans? And dear God, to be better than that, being the worst <laughs> in the National Football League. Um, it's how do the Indianapolis Colts look? Period, full stop, end sentence. I don't care about the other three teams right now. I want to see the Indianapolis Colts be better. That's my concern, and my guess will be that's most people's concern right now, too. Greg, Greg. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Strong's with us on the guest line, brought to you by the Mower Shop and Fishers and themowershop.com. Rake, I want to put you, I want to, I want you to put on your owner's cap right now. We're going to go full hypothetical. So after the season, whether they judge if Jeff Saturday is the guy or not, let's say he's not the guy and they need a new head coach. As the owner of the Indianapolis Colts in this hypothetical situation, would you want to go hire a defensive minded head coach or do you go get an offensive guy? Similar to Frank Reich, but if you go defensive, you'll probably need to reevaluate Parks Frazier as an offensive play caller, right? So if you hire an offensive head coach, that guy probably calls the plays. If you go defensive, you're going to need to go all in probably too on an offensive coordinator. Your thoughts? If you are hiring a head coach, you hire the right guy for the job. And then you let that head coach put together his staff. Let's face it, you know, when it worked with Frank Reich, and Matt Eberflus and Nick Sirianni, it worked because you had good people, even if they weren't put together in the order in which you normally had them, where Frank comes in and inherits Matt Eberflus, obviously brings Nick Sirianni with him. That worked, but what you want to do this time around, now five years later, is bring in a head coach and then say, okay, who do you want the pieces to be? If the head coach wants to keep either Parks Frazier or Gus Bradley next year, whether that's Jeff Saturday or somebody else, then so be it. You always work from the top down. And so there are things about Parks Frazier that I think everybody in the organization likes. Clearly, 
given the responsibility he's inherited at such a young age, that speaks very highly of him. But if bring in an offensive-minded coach who wants to be his own play caller, if he wants Parks to stay here, great. And if not, Parks will find someplace else to work. Gus Bradley's defense has not been the problem this year. But if for some reason you bring in another head coach who is a defensive-minded guy wants to bring in his own coordinator, then I'm sure Gus will find gainful employment someplace else. Start with the top and work your way down. Everything right now, you're not good enough to start the micro. You're worried about the macro if you're the Indianapolis Colts. Start big, work your way down. Greg, we talk all the time. Greg Rakestraw, nice enough to join us. You can follow him on Twitter, at Greg Rakestraw, as BK mentioned, wearer of many hats, including in this conversation, post-game show host for your Indianapolis Colts. We hear so often, regardless of what the record is, that people are fighting for jobs, they're fighting for livelihoods, not just this year, but next year. As you're looking at this team with not a lot to play for right now, where are you most focused on observing, hopefully, growth and improvement over these final four weeks? Again, it's the young guys. Um, you know, I, I know what you have in Michael Pittman. Um, I think I know what I got in Paris Campbell. And again, Paris, even though his numbers have tailed off, he's still been available. He's been healthy, and that has made this season a win for Paris. But I want to see I want to see the rookie senior develop. You know, Bernard Ryman is learning from his mistakes and is getting better. That's a good thing. But I am all for again. I want to know exactly what I've got on the fifty-three man roster. If I'm the Indianapolis Colts, I want to have as much to nerd out on you, as much data collection as possible going into the offseason to make the most educated personnel decisions that anyone can make. I want to know exactly what my roster is comprised of, knowing that, you know, what we thought was going to happen in 2022, basically the opposite of that happened in 2022. So I want to be as well informed about those pieces for 2023 as possible. So it's, it's, again, Get the ball to the young guys. Get more reps for the young guys on defense. There are certain pieces you know. Hey, Grover Stewart's going to be a stalwart for you. DeForest Buckner's going to be a stalwart for you. Zaire Franklin's going to be a stalwart for you. To me, it's not about guys that you know are under contract. It's about the guys that are on their rookie deals or the guys that are coming up for free agency. Those are the guys I want to know the most about over the last month of the year. Rick, a lot of people like to try to read tea leaves. It's often a fool's errand, so I'll just ask you this, and if you you want to spike it in my face, that's totally fine. But in terms of Chris Ballard and in terms of Jeff Saturday, can we read into anything that happens these final four weeks of the season in terms of what those two positions are going to look like next year, or is this ultimately going to be something that is not finished and finalized until with a comfortable answer until season's end? Uh, I, I think it'll be a full snapshot of the season then. And again, um, in terms of Jeff, I don't think it has anything to do with win-loss record. More wins would certainly help. But I think it's it's the things that we can't see. It's how players interact with him. It's It's the demeanor in which he carries himself during practice. It's the way that he communicates with the remainder of the staff. Um, it, it, it's it, It's things like that where, again, if he goes 1-7, and seven, do I think he's the head coach here next year? Probably not, but I still don't think it's about wins and losses. So I, I imagine those decisions get made in January, not at any point in December. Rake, do you want to hit on some other football, specifically the College Cup, the national championship? That comes up tonight at 6 o'clock, Indiana and Syracuse. 
Rake, I think it's wild. I was listening to Soccer Saturday um, when I was driving on Saturday morning. Uh, remarkable that the Hoosiers, they have not given up a goal in this tournament. How wild is that? Um, given Indiana football as an IU soccer, it's 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 impressive. Not altogether crazy. Um, what I what is impressive about this group is that this is not as star studded of a roster as they have had in recent years. You go back three or four years, there's seven or eight current pros that were on this team. A lot of guys playing at the USL Championship level, but others uh, that are playing overseas or playing in MLS, Andrew Gutman, Trey Muse comes to mind, and, and Trey will be an MLS goalkeeper at some point in time. It takes longer for those guys to break through um, than say the, the position guys. There will be guys that will play professional soccer out of this group, but there is not the easy-to-point-to star out of this group. This has been a true team effort for head coach Todd Yeagley. This is, this is kind of a program team. Uh, and when you have a program like Indiana, who has now reached a national championship game for a 17th time mm. in basically their five-decade history, that's just insane. But in terms of the star level of this group, it's, it's muted from what it's been the last few years. You know, the, the recent guys, Victor Bezerra, now plays in Major League Soccer. Roman Celentano, who was the second pick in the MLS Super Draft, became the starting netminder for FC Cincinnati this past year, which is rare for a kid of his age to, to get that many reps on a playoff team in Major League Soccer. Um, you know, Ryan Whitbrick's going to get a look. Tommy Mahalik's going to get a look. JT Harms, given how he has played, is going to get a look. But this is truly about the team, the team, the team, more so than, you know, a star player kind of carrying Indiana on this tournament run. Rick, we're not going to have an opportunity to talk to you until the FIFA World Cup concludes. So your thoughts on the semifinal matchups tomorrow and Wednesday and having you put on the pundit hat for a second, who you think walks out of Qatar as champions? I think France makes it back-to-back. You know, I thought France and Brazil were the top two teams, you know, kind of going into it at the end of group stage. Obviously, Brazil got knocked out. Uh, what Croatia has done it's hard to call a team that was the runner-up four and a half years ago as an underdog with Oregon against Brazil, and they found a way to win after that Neymar goal. To use the Brian Dunseth term, you know, that was done and dusted. Uh, Croatia had other ideas. Morocco is a wonderful story. You kind of think against France, it's probably where the run ends up coming to an end. But I think France is your champion by the time. Uh, if we speak next Tuesday which or Monday, which is certainly on my plans, I would probably tell you that uh, – the Blue Blanc at Rouge will be hosting, holding the World Cup for a second consecutive playing of it. Wait, Rake, we appreciate the time. Did want to ask you one more question before I let you go. We talked on Indiana Sports Talk on Friday, and you did the Danville game, I think, against Southmont, and we talked about high school basketball this year and maybe the par- the uh, parody of it we've seen over the last couple campaigns. And I thought you gave a really good answer, so I want to talk about it again here. About Are we seeing that same type of parody you think this year? Are there you know four or five teams that you think are going to be the big boys at the end of it? Uh, you know, I, I think that four or five number is, is pretty accurate. You know, I had a chance to see the top three teams in the state in the rankings in Cathedral, Ben Davis, and Penn um, on, on Saturday. Marcus Burton was tremendous. Uh, Zane Dowdy and Ben Davis were outstanding. Uh, Cathedral's got some talented pieces. They missed that linking piece of Tayshawn Comer. And when you lose your all-time leading scorer and really 
is not a four-year starter at point guard, a three-year starter at point guard. His evidence is obvious, you know, for Cathedral. But Cathedral, when you have players, and, and Xavier Booker has been largely non-existent the last two Saturdays, he'll figure it out. It, it'll kick in for him at some point in time. So you throw those two, those three teams in there. Brownsburg, I think, is a lot better than people thought they would be. I think the catchings kid has improved. It's caught up with kind of that potential that he has had uh, out in Brownsburg. What Flory Badunga is capable of doing uh, at Kokomo, you've got to throw them into the mix. So, uh, and, and, you know, don't sleep on Harrelson carrying Fishers, you know, for, for, for a great amount uh, as well. So there are probably five or six teams that you would point to in, in terms of 4A. So if you consider that parity, great. Consider that top heavy, that's fine too. But it, it's, it's not one team that you point to. It's probably four or five that you look at. The best team, the deepest team is Ben Davis. Doesn't necessarily mean they are guaranteed to win a state championship uh, by the time uh, March 25th rolls around. Greg Regstraw, you are the man. We appreciate the time very much, and we'll talk soon, my friend. That is Greg Regstrom with us on the guest line brought to you by the Mower Shop in Fishers and themowershop.com for all your snowblowers, commercial and residential mowers, plus service and power tools.